0: As you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 16 instead of verse 19, and we won't be reading all the way to 26, but rather probably only to verse 21. And if I had a chance to rename the sermon before it made it to the bulletin, I would call it something like the flesh and its works. The flesh and its works. As we turn to Galatians 5… It's always helpful to remember that this letter written by the Apostle Paul is written to a church or to churches in the region of Galatia that have lost their way, and they've gotten confused, confused both theologically and practically. Theologically, we've put most of our emphasis there that They have confused the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They've allowed in some works, so it's no longer by faith alone, but by faith plus works. And then there's a practical outworking of this. The practical import of this theological problem is the practical problem. It puts them in a place where when they want to grow in their faith, when they want to deepen their walk with the Lord. They do it by working, by effort. Their their way of doing it is to go back to the Old Testament ceremonial cleanliness laws and to keep them rigorously. And they want to grow holier, and so they look harder and they try harder, and it's by white-knuckle effort that they're holier and keep the law better than the guy next to them. See, they end up trying to grow in their relationship with God, becoming more holy by the flesh. And Paul is ever so not subtly, ever so directly telling them not to walk by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So, this is what we pick up in Galatians 5 and verse 16, reading through verse 21. Paul says, "'But I say, walk by the Spirit.'" and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident." sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." I always feel risky when I start with an illustration from a Disney movie. Uh, but we dressed up as the Lion King this week. What, what, uh, what uh, At the Fall Family Fun Night, my family, we were dressed up as Mufasa and Simba and Timon and all the rest. And Anyway, there's, there's a scene in the Lion King movie where uh, Timon and Pumbaa, the meerkat, and the warthog wake up, and they're being hunted by a lioness and they're running, uh, and at the last moment before the lioness is going to eat them, they're saved by Simba, their friend who's the lion, and he knocks the lioness over, and, but it's not when Simba and, or Pumbaa and Timon see it. It's, it's not as if there's a fight going on. They're actually laughing and joking and catching up and conversing, and Timon and Billy Crystal's voice says, what's going on here? That's how I felt looking at this passage This week, and of course, that's never a bad question to be asking. Uh, That's a helpful question. What's going on here is actually a number of things. Paul is not doing, uh, say, one simple thing. He's he's hitting uh, many birds with one stone. I am convinced he's continuing to answer that implicit question back up in verse thirteen, defending himself against charges of antinomianism. Uh, He's answering the question, "Why work? Why would the Christian work when Christ has already given us the A plus?" And he's told us, well, because of the law of love, don't you know you've been made by the one who is love, made to be his image, to spread love into the world, redeemed by Christ, uh, to be love in the world? Don't you know that further, not only love, but the Spirit, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're united with the Spirit, a third person, the Trinity, uh, is in your bones, as it were. You're united to him. He's living through you. How could you? It's your very nature. Love in the Spirit, Christians have to work. They will work out the law of God in their lives. It's by their very nature. And then a second question that came out of that. Well, if if the law that we're keeping is the law of love, if it's verse 14, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, who can do that? Who can love their enemies, neighbors, those around them, using all the industry and energy and focus that you care for your own needs, for somebody else, that might not even, not your own family, your neighbor? How do you do that? Well, again, Paul's answering that implicit question by the power of the Spirit, by the empowerment and the nearness of God who is communicating to you the benefits of Christ. And then further, in answering, I think, this heading question of why does the Christian work and how can the Christian do it, and and opening up this answer of the Spirit, Paul is beginning to describe what I think for us is most helpfully described as a Christian psychological framework, a way of thinking about the the psyche, the soul, the inner workings of men and women, of people, uh, what goes on on the inside. That's what Paul is setting forward for us. And so, uh, the first point we'll be describing in the way in which what we see in verses 16 and following is really a, a Christian view of the soul, a Christian psychological framework to understand. Then secondly, uh, you know, as, as the sermon was longer in the beginning of the week, we're going to go on to the, the two parts of that, both the flesh and the spirit. But this evening, we'll only get to uh, the, the flesh, and we'll talk about what it is, how it works, and what it works. What it is, how it works, and what it works. And we'll see that illustrated in verses 19 through 21. So, that's our general outline. You know where we're going. We're seeking to describe what Paul is putting forward as a Christian psychological framework, and we're examining the one half of that, that is the flesh. Now, a psychological framework is one of those things that everyone has. Perhaps they don't know they have. The same way, you know, R.C. Sproul says that everyone is a theologian, everyone has a theology. They have assumptions about God and what he's like, whether you admit it or not. So you have assumptions about what happens internally, how people work psychologically, whether you acknowledge it or not. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone's a psychologist in some way or another. And indeed, when Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and others began to popularize the study of the soul or psychology, and they began to theorize about why people do what they do, they sought to bring all the tools of enlightenment empirical, scientific examination and codification to bear. But of course, with one small caveat, one assumption uh, among many, I suppose, that uh, the Bible would be merely uh, another a, a data point instead of what it claims to be and what Christianity claims to be, what Christ claims to be. That is the Word of God that Uh, They wouldn't come to the Bible, of course, seeking to understand uh, what goes on inside us, but would rather observe it and make a scientific framework from which to understand it. Uh, They would say, of course, the Bible is non-scientific and uh, not a helpful authority. And so, secular psychology uh, flowing from this study certainly sets forward to build for itself an an understanding, a framework for what happens internally, you might say, without God, without the workings of the supernatural. And so, there are psychodynamic and behavioral and humanistic and cognitive and biological frameworks of psychology, excluding, of course, the one answer, the one thing uh, that our every soul demands, the, the image in which the soul and, all, of course, all of man is made, that is God Himself. And, of course, this isn't to say that there isn't much we can learn from secular psychology or Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung or clinical psychiatric practice. No doubt uh, there is immense help and much to learn. And yet we should know, as those who follow Christ, who pay attention and submit to His Word, He who says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not when I iota of my Word, that here would be found something that speaks to the, the nature of our souls… What happens internally? And, of course, there are many passages to turn to in the Bible that would describe the internal workings of the human soul. But this one in particular, I think, is especially helpful and clarifying. Last time, we began to discuss what is being explained really in verses 16 through 18. As we've mentioned before, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, is at work in the Christian soul, communicating the benefits of Christ to us. We notice that we are an in-between people, and already but not yet. We are not yet perfected, and so we have the Spirit at work in us, but also the flesh, and they are opposed to one another. There is a war going on in your chest, in your soul, as it were, in your heart. Of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in us. There's this new nature and this old nature, the Spirit and the the flesh. So that here Paul is in a way pointing to the very base of our soul conflict, our Christian psychology, we might say, that what we do, uh, or that we do what we do, we bear the fruit we bear because we are either living in line with the Spirit or living in line with the flesh. So the first thing we should notice in our biblical psychology is that there is a dualism internally, two antithetical powers at work, and the second thing we should notice is not only is there a dualism internally, but we should notice the way in which these two dual natures are, we call them desire factories, or talking about our… a way of speaking about of our, our motivational or heart level… Um, Uh, motivations. Look at verse 17, just the passage, uh, verse 4. It says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, I hope hope we're beginning to see what… I hope to point out by our first point, what the flesh is. We need to be clear, it's not our bodies, as we might assume nor is it, as Freud postulated, some kind of id or ego or superego, but rather, as it's defined here, it is the source of selfish desire. It's where our me-first motivations come from. The flesh is the residual sinful nature still operating within the soul. It's the voice that says, well, what about me from inside your heart and mind? It's the the gravitational pull, we might understand, in the midst of what happens in our lives uh, around which everything else uh, finds its, its circumference. Uh, it's, it's the me first pull. Uh, where do I stand in this? Of course, often it's, it's helpful to understand one thing in relation to, to the other, and so that's the way Paul puts it out here. The flesh is a sinful nature, and the spirit is, of course, the redeemed, new, true part of us that will last forever. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 17, the flesh is there to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That is, the true you that's redeemed and will last for eternity. The things that person wants to do, the the you in there, that's the spirit at work. The thing holding it back is the gravitational pull of the flesh. The Spirit, in contrast, is the born-again, Holy Spirit-inspired, the you that has not self as the gravitational center of our universe, but God. It's the source of God-word motivations. That's what the Spirit is. The Spirit is the voice in your heart that says, I trust you, Lord, whatsoever comes to pass. It's the Spirit in our hearts that would, it says, you know, what would the Lord have me do here and now? It's the voice that says, how can I love God and my neighbor in this situation? It's the part that rejoices anytime, anywhere, anyhow, the Lord's name is glorified and not my own. That's what it is. But secondly, how it works, Paul points out, or gives us a good hint in verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under God. The law see the, the Spirit is not under the law the spirit's been liberated from the law by grace that is it 's accepted what Christ did on my behalf this is this is the way the flesh and the spirit work. See the one who's guided by the spirit is happy to be humble, happy to have christ 's name name glorified, happy for him to do the work and to get the credit and on the other hand, how does the flesh work? The flesh works by the operating principle. Of a works righteousness. It's me who saved me. It's by my effort that makes me better. It's by my doings that my my soul is set right with God. The operating principle, the operating system of the flesh, how it works, it's a works righteousness principle. This connects deeply with all Paul's been saying in chapter 3, 4, and 5 leading up to this. Those who would save themselves by works are operating On the fleshly operating system. What the flesh is, it's the me center. How the flesh works, it promotes itself by pride. This is, of course, very much in line with what we've seen of what the Galatians are doing. The Galatians are seeking to deepen their walk, be more religious by white knuckle effort of keeping the Old Testament law of God. And in so doing, they are puffed up and proud in what they've accomplished and this is that diametrical opposition to what the spirit of God would have in us it's keeping me as the center of my heart rather than the lord so that's what the flesh is that's how the flesh works and thirdly paul illustrates it he shows us what the flesh works this is what paul's showing us in verses 19 through 21 15 words here in verses 19 through 21 that more helpfully fall into four basic groupings four groupings the first three relate the first three words relate to sex the second two words relate to religion the third eight words relate to relationships and the last two words to alcohol sex religion relationships and alcohol all relevant topics then and now of course so the works of the flesh listed I think are most helpfully thought of as examples of what happens when you mix the me-centered flesh with this thing. So, the first thing we see, what happens when you mix the me-centered flesh with sex? What's the result? What does it produce? Well, the first word we're given is that what's produced is porneia, or sexual immorality. That is, you end up wanting sex with people that are not your spouse. The Bible is painfully clear. It's not talking about just sexual actions. No, it's any sexual desire, any lust, any desires except for your spouse are sinful and to be repented of, sexual desires. That's what Jesus explained in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. If you look lustfully at a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You're sinning against God, such is the standard put forward. God's law, His creational intention is clear. Sex belongs in a very confined and protected space, and heterosexual, monogamous marriage and there alone. And as Dr. Johnson so well often illustrates, it is like uh, the fire in the fireplace. What a beautiful and useful and warm and inviting when the fire is in the home in the fireplace. But the fire outside of the intended place in the home, to bring the fire into the living room, where it ought not to be, is to burn the house down. Indeed, this is what sexual morality is. When you're motivated first by your good, your way, your wants, your flesh, you fall into pornea or sexual immorality. Secondly, you fall into akatharsa, or impurity, which is any unnatural sexual practice. The boundaries of what God would have for me, what He stipulates, um, the motives that are with the Spirit, they are lost when I'm on my own selfish operating system. And sexual attractions, of course, are are sticky. Our attractions stick to things they shouldn't all too easily. This is the thing about these desires. There's no end to the fetishes or kinks because sexual desire and confusion is easily had when we're operating on a me-first universe. When indulgence becomes a, a therapy, when indulgence becomes a virtue and repression becomes a danger, we all too easily fall into impurity, unnatural, ungodly, unholy, unclean sexual confusion. Thirdly, flesh-motivated sex leads to sensuality or aselgia. This is uh, an important distinction to always have in our minds, the difference between sensuous and sensual. You know, I, I'm not very marmish in my English major brain as far as, you know, right diction or verbiage or any of those things, but um, uh, Dr. Ryken, uh, Leland, uh, drilled it into my head. This important distinction, which we all too often misunderstand, sensuous things are things that are, um, are good. Uh, chocolate chip cookies are sensuous. You smell them. They taste good. There's something aromatic about it. It's, it's a good... Sensual things are the L for illicit or illegal, those things that are bad. Something that's sensuality is something that is not good. Uh, Some men uh, wearing their underwear in public, sensual, not good. Chocolate chip cookies, sensuous, good. But the person who's caught in aselgia or sensuality, has all manner of uncontrolled sexuality, a kind of obsession with sex. It's, it's moving from one thing to the next. Every person you meet, every place you go, there is something about you that's seeking the titillation, seeking the arousal, uh, that uh, the whole life is marked by a solicit, illicit sensuality. You see… Working according to the flesh as it relates to sex produces the opposite of what sex is meant to be. Instead of an exclusive, meaningful, beautiful act of intimate, self-giving, covenantal love, it becomes an act meant to scratch an itch or to slake a thirst for only a moment, which of course only increases it the next time because this is the nature of sex itself. and Any other high we would ever pursue. There is a law of diminishing returns. Each time you need something harder, riskier, naughtier until you wake up in unspeakable perversion. And, of course, what's true of individuals is true of a civilization, and as a culture, here we are. The Next category, we move from sex to religion. What happens when you mix the fleshly, me-centered motives with religion? Well, the first thing he mentions is that you get idolatry. Of course, we see this in so many ways. Um, So often among evangelicals, you hear the argument, well, I can't serve a God who… fill in the blank from a biblical example. I can't serve a God who would just choose who He would save, who would elect from all history, from before the foundation of the world, those He would save. Or I can't serve a God that would uh, bring judgment upon sin. Well, uh, as soon as we… Uh, draw our theological boundaries. By what makes sense to me or feels right to me, I have become the center of my religion, and I've fallen into a false religion. I've fallen into idolatry, or in a different way. Perhaps too often, especially in a works righteousness, legalistic framework, my religion is really meant as therapy for me, I'm religious because I, you know, I've got some insecurities, and this makes me feel okay. It makes me feel righteous. It gives me a place to belong. And really, of course, if your religion becomes a practical self-help, a therapy for me, your God ends up being yourself. You love God for you, and you are actually your God. You've fallen into idolatry. So first, idolatry. And secondly, when you mix religion and flesh, you get sorcery or Greek word here, pharmakai, from which we get our word pharmacy, and I think it's interesting that the symbol for pharmacy is the pestle and mortar, which looks something to me like a, like a witch's or a sorcerer's cauldron might. So, there is sorcery here. And indeed, uh, for many, religion itself can become a um, the way to taste the transcendent. We're, we're all drawn to uh, the euphoric good feels, right? The, the woozy-woozies, I like to call them, uh, where you pursue God for the next high. And so you show up to church, and they have the band, and turn the lights down, turn the lights, other lights up, and the lasers and they play the thing, and they bang the drums until you're whipped up into this emotional high. Or, on the other hand, perhaps... Um, you go to the giant cathedral and you observe the beautiful ancient liturgy with all the mystical Latin word and verbiage, and it's not according to content. No, they're 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 giving you straight the woozy woozies, the the feeling uh, taste of transcendence. Or the other way to shortcut the way to taste transcendence is by pharmacology, by sorcery, by drugs. You can take the peyote. You can go on the LSD trip. You can take the thing that touches divination without any content or any true love or knowledge of God. It's about me and how I feel and how I'm feeling, and that's really what I'm pursuing in my religion. It's a fleshly-centered desire. So we've seen if you mix flesh and sex and flesh and religion, the next category, what happens when you mix fleshly me motives with our relationships? Well, when that happens, you get the mess of these eight descriptors in verse 20, starting with enmity, you get enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. When people don't give you what you want, these eight things happen. The flesh motive maker, life revolves around me, makes all of your life a mess with these things. Your own heart spills out into your own family, to your church. To your team, your classroom, your office, wherever it is. And this is what life becomes. Taught um, Genesis chapter 30 on Thursday evening, which is the infamous story of the rivalry between Rachel and Leah, the beloved wife and the not-so-beloved wife. And the the story of what happens there, it, it gets, things get so bad and so messed up that they're trading mandrakes for a night to sleep with her husband. It, it's, you're looking at the, the first family of the setting up the kingdom of God, the holy family of Jacob and the promise, and it's bordering on he's he's bought and sold on a, a root found in foraging. It's it's a mess. You can only imagine. And and why is it like this? Well, how does it get so bad? Well, what does Rachel want? Rachel wants, she'll give anything, she worships uh, Uh, at the altar of fertility. If she had children, her life would be full. And what does Leah want? Oh, she wants her husband's love. And if she had that, everything else would be okay. And it happens between these rivalries. They're not getting what they want at the center of their lives. This me-centered desire that is destroying their family. And what you see listed here is what's happening, no doubt, in Genesis 30. Or for example, I sit on the session of our church and I think the thing our church needs is a gymnasium. The thing our next building program that we should give to is, is building this gymnasium. That is how we should move forward. Bless the youth ministry, have more flexible space, etc. You know, I, I make the motion in the room, and I, I gather some, some guys at the table around with me that agree with me, but I lose. And there are two ways at work within me, within me. One is to allow the Spirit, right? The that God-centered me to take control. And I can understand my losing, me not getting what I wanted at the session by trusting the Lord's sovereignty, by trusting His way, trust of His form of church government, Presbyterianism, trust and His elders, and I can rest and still be in complete unity with the brothers, the fathers and brothers in the session, even though I didn't get what I wanted, because what I… Or what I thought was best because I am operating according to the Spirit. I trust the Lord. I believe in Him. Or I can allow the me-centered flesh to take over. And I can see those guys didn't vote for my motion as my opposition, as my enemies. I can allow rivalries to start. Uh, I can allow my frustration and anger to bubble over. I can become jealous when another motion passes, and I begin to foster divisions in the session as the political maneuvering comes for the next go-around. Or, for example, another, another opportunity. It's clear that when you and certain family members get together for the holidays, as Thanksgiving is coming up, perhaps, you know, you let your kids watch TV in certain movies and, and they don't. Or, or perhaps, you know, you go to church and you're very religious and, and they're not so religious. And there's just an awkwardness. And really, there's a bit of insecurity. Um, you, you feel a little uncomfortable. You feel judged by them. Why? Because you're not getting from them what you want. You want their affirmation. You want their approval. And if you're operating according to the flesh, how do you operate? Well, perhaps you avoid them, or perhaps you act very nice and polite on the outside all the while steaming and feeling judged and frustrated on the inside. And as that bubbles over, of course, what follow is is this list? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, genesis, uh, dissensions, divisions, and envy. But what if you're operating according to the Spirit? You take those negative emotions, those desires for approval to get from them, and you realize, you take those desires to Christ. You know that you receive all that you could ever need any approval, encouragement, all from Christ already, and you feed upon that. And you look upon the spiritual reality of Christ's approval, and you don't need to get that from them. You already have it. And so your operating system switches. You're no longer asking, how can I get from them what I want? But you're asking, how can I serve them? How can I love these family members that are difficult? I actually have the love of Christ in me to give unto you and to encourage you. I'm not worried about my insecurities. You see, unity in the family, unity in the church that is deeper than the surface level demands a heart-level rejection of selfishness of a me-centered universe, and a heart-level submission to the way of the Holy Spirit. So, that we've seen flesh mixed with sex, and flesh mixed with religion, flesh mixed with relationships, and this last category, alcohol. Mix the flesh with alcohol, and you get drunkenness and orgies, or the word for orgies here seems to most directly mean drinking parties… And yet, in the ancient world and in the modern world, there's no confusion about what happens at drinking parties, the debauchery that is contained in the Word. Now, mix the flesh with alcohol, and you do not drink in thanksgiving to God for His bounty and provision, or to aid in the fellowship over a beautiful meal, but you drink for yourself. And you seek to find in the bottom of the bottle what you know it it can't give, but gives only a counterfeit taste of. The fleshly life living for me drives me to drink for me. This is what the flesh is. This is how the flesh works. This is what the flesh works, these unfortunate lists. And Paul does not shy away from as strong and ironic a warning as he can give. It's called lightities. It's an ironic understatement in verse 21b. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They'll be kept out of the kingdom of God. They'll be shut out. They'll be in the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is deeply consistent with what Jesus Christ teaches throughout His ministry. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And there's not one among us who would say we have no jealousy or envy. That doesn't have some understanding of, uh, of, enmity and strife, in our lives. This is meant to give us pause. It's meant to help us give a inventory of our souls, to turn to Christ into, the Spirit afresh. There are some deep implication of Paul's teaching on the flesh. I'll give just two of them in conclusion. First, if you want to know why the world is the way it is, why there is war, trauma, crime, and poverty, rape, and murder? The whole Bible answer would be the world, the flesh, and the devil, but the answer from this passage is, of course, the flesh. Indeed, Alistair Begg is so fond of saying, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, It's difficult to overstate the importance of this passage as it sets forth in clarity where the battle lies for the Christian. One of the main fronts in the cosmic struggle is in your own chest between the flesh and the Spirit. We'll come in future weeks to what it means to fight that battle, to wage war, mortifying the flesh and vivifying the Spirit. But this week, secondly, is an implication as Paul sets forward one way of understanding a, a Christian psychological framework, we ought, to know, we ought to notice the way it flies in the face of modern psychology. Of course, not that some diagnosis in clinical and pharmaceutical care can't help it very well. May not that we can't learn from modern psychology. We can. But the tendency in modern psychology is to identify you with your desires, to make your diagnosis confused with uh, the struggle going on in your soul. You are not your sexual desires, and your diagnosis does not absolve you from your own personal responsibility to live with the help of the Spirit. You deal with sexual desires for someone else's spouse, or for another woman, or for another man or other confused, disordered sexual desires. That does not mean you are a homosexual. That does not mean you are a gay or a lesbian or bi or trans. That means you deal with sexual morality. That means you deal with sensuality. It means you have desires in your heart that need to be mortified. It does not make that your protected, oppressed identity. Your diagnosis does not absolve you of your sin before God. There is no such thing, we might say, as a trans person, but there are people who deal with deep jealousy of what the other gender might have. We ought not fear in some ways, as I I did at one point in my life, that my children would be gay or lesbian. No, they will surely deal with confused sexual desires, and we must teach our children how to deal with those illicit. Sinful desires. It's not a a boogeyman thing. All sin is this. It all can be dealt with in the flesh. We have the power of the Spirit. And one day we'll be liberated from this flesh. We will be giving new bodies, resurrection bodies. We will indeed have victory. Indeed, as we've been working uh, what Paul sets up here as a kind of Christian psychological framework, we've discussed this evening only the flesh. We'll come back next week. We'll discuss the spirit and what it means to wage war in our own souls. Of course, there's much to say, but we'll end with this. We might summarize the whole passage: mortifying the flesh, vivifying the spirit, is happens in this way. It happens in trusting the Lord. It's really what Paul says in verse 16, back at the top. Walk by the Spirit. Trust the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. As we pray together.